Also, this morning we have the great privilege. We don't get it very often, but today we do, and that is to hear from Caroline to preach. So let's welcome Caroline as she comes. Thank you. I need it a little higher because I can't see very well these days. Good morning, everyone. Um, and thank you so much for sharing your stories, Austin and Vanessa's help, and also the passionate announcement from Lucius. And today, I, um, as I speak, I just would like you to hold those stories that you've heard, even the excerpts uh, about the, um, the activist movement in Stonewall. Um, I just want you to hold those stories as you listen to my talk because I think it's relevant. So as I was preparing for this talk last week, I've come across interesting data. Um, according to the survey done by Barna Group in 2019, Christian self-perception, how we see ourselves as Christians, diverges widely from how non-Christians see Christians. So most notably, Evangelicals describe themselves as 61% 60 caring, 57% hopeful, friendly, generous. Whereas non-Christians hold negative views about evangelicals, 34% um, narrow-minded, 30% uh, homophobic, misogynistic, racist, and uptight. Doesn't look good, does it? And there are many articles online discussing this dynamic between the gap between um, our self, the Christian self-perception and how others see Christians as, um, and calling it Christianity's image problems. That seems like an understatement to me. Given Christianity's track record historically with colonization, with uh, crusades, with slavery, and the treatment of the queer community, immigrants, and women in, in today's society. The problem seems to run, run deeper than just its image. Southern Baptist Convention, the largest pro Protestant denomination in the US, recently, this last February, expelled churches from their organization for having women pastors in 2023. It's not just the image. There's something more fundamental going on, and we need a deeper reflection on how Christianity thinks about faith, relationship with God and life, how, how it imagines salvation. So today, as part of the sermon series Flipped, where we have been exploring misunderstandings about faith and Christianity, I would like to tackle the common misconceptions about salvation. What is salvation? What does it mean to be saved? And how does one get saved? Because I think this misconception at least partially contributes to Christianity's image problem. So the usual teaching about Christian salvation is that 
You may have heard this from your Sunday schools. People are sinful, and because of our sins, we're separated from God. And we as humans cannot overcome this gap, this alienation, but Jesus came and died on our behalf, paid the price of our sins so that we, uh, for the, so that those who believe in God, believe in Jesus, will be reconciled to God and become God's children. Sounds familiar? And models like the four spiritual laws is built on this theology. It is developed by Campus Crusade in the 60s. It's still popular. And it's uh, used as a simple way to explain Christianity and it's its theory of salvation to non-Christians and new, new Christians. Um, it's four steps to salvation according to the four spiritual laws. It's the first God, second man, third Christ, and fourth response. So first, God loves you and has good plans for you. Two, Man is sinful and separated from God. Three, Christ is the only Savior. Four, therefore, receive Christ as Lord and Savior, and you're forgiven, and you're now with God. There are issues with this model, but the one that I want to focus today is uh, this. In this model, and the conventional Christian understanding of salvation like this one, salvation is solely dependent on your personal relationship with God. It is entirely personal and private. It's between God and me, people say, right? All you need is you to respond properly to God regardless of your relationship with others. It has nothing to say about our relationship with others or com our communities. How are we to treat other people? One simply prays the prayer and is saved. This uh, model claims to be based on the Bible, but how Jesus talks about faith is a little different in the Bible. So let's look at the passage, the famous passage in Matthew 22 together. Let me read it for us. When the Pharisees heard that, the, that he had silenced, Jesus had silenced the Sadducees with an argument, not, um, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So what Jesus means by all the law and the prophets is basically the whole Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Because at this time, 
There was no New Testament. And Jesus was a Jew who practiced his Jewish faith. We sometimes have this idea that there was something missing in Judaism and Jesus came and perfected it and fixed it. Not true, not necessarily. Just like any other religion, there were different strands within Judaism that focused on different things. And Jesus himself identified as a Jew and saw himself as working within the bounds of Judaism. And this passage shows that because the two commandments he discusses here, he did not come up with these two. He's quoting the Bible. Do you see the little single quotation marks? That means that it is from, quoted from the, from the Old Testament. Um, what is new about his teaching is that he connected these two commandments in the Bible as the heart and the summary of the whole Bible. That was new. And what are those two commandments that the whole Bible hangs on? He says, first, love God, and second, love others as yourself. And is the first more important than the second? You love God first and love others if there's any left over? I don't think so, because he says here that second is like the first. The word like here is translated from a Greek word, hamoia, um, connected to words like homogeneous. And it means like, similar, same as, equivalent. So Jesus is saying the first commandment is equivalent to the second. And some of us might still feel that the first is first and the second second. Let me quote another saying from, of Jesus from the same book, the book of Matthew. In Matthew 7, 12, he says, in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. It's a different version of love, right? It's a golden rule. For this is the law and the prophets. So this version of his saying, also deals with what the whole Bible is about, what, what, the, what, it, what, what it is, the heart of the whole Bible. And Jesus here mentions only how we relate to others, how we love others. Does not mention our relationship with God. How can these two passages be true both and make sense? It only makes sense in, this con in these two contexts together if loving God and loving others as oneself are two equivalent commandments. They're two sides of the same coin. Now let's take a little closer look at the second commandment that says love others as yourself. So it's really discussing two loves, right? Love of others, and love of oneself. 
And you will need to love yourself to be able to love others well. If you don't love yourself, loving others as yourself doesn't really mean much. And it is not the selfish, egotistical greed mistaken as self-love. But it refers to loving and respecting and embracing of oneself as a person, knowing and connecting with oneself. So Jesus is talking about, in this, through these two commandments, three loves or connections. And love here is agape. Charles would probably like to point that out to you. It's unconditional love. <laughs> connection to God, connection to others, connection to self. Three connections. And these three connections are equivalent to each other, complementary to each other, meaning that you cannot have one without the other two. In the long run, they might seem to conflict with each other at times in the short term, and that's just life. And there will be seasons where we feel the need to focus on one of the, these more than the other two, and that's growth. But in the long run, true connections lead to other true connections. Isn't that true of our experience too? We cannot fully love God without loving others. We cannot fully love God or others without loving ourselves. When we repress part of ourself and deny who we are, then ultimately it harms the relationship with others or God because how can you have a meaningful relationship with others, divine or mortal, when the self is not there? How do we affirm our connection to God in whose image we are created and continue to behave in a way that harm others who also are created in God's image and who we are connected to through this shared likeness of God? when our faith over time does not grow in all three connections, we must examine our faith and course correct. Because when one connection is emphasized at the expense of the other two, faith stops being life-giving. It turns harmful. So when a religious teaching demands obedience to God at the expense of one's connection to self, that is a toxic religion. When, a, when parents demand their child to choose parents' wishes over the child's connection to their own identity, that's toxic parenting. When the church leaders teach people to discriminate against groups of people to follow God's law, that is a toxic and deadly theology. That is not what Jesus is about. But as you can see, the salvation model, theology, such as four spiritual laws, focuses exclusively 
on one connection. One's relationship with God is way to salvation. It is not toxic in and of itself, but it has tendency, strong tendency to lead to toxic faith where we harm others in the name of God. One's conviction is enough reason to do all sorts of things regardless of its impact on the lives of actual people. The religious right stances on abortion, gun control, LGBTQ communities, immigration, people of color, and women all share one thing, the complete disregard for the lived experiences of, li of real people. LGBTQ youth from religious background face a higher rate of homelessness and mental health problems, including higher suicide rate. Yet the suffering of actual people, our own children, lowless, does not move conservative Christians' religious convictions. And Christian religion repeatedly becomes a weapon to discriminate and oppress the marginalized. And one possible reason for this, my suspicion, is that it is embedded in the traditional theology of salvation itself. This theology is formulated from the perspective of the privileged and the powerful because Christianity has been the religion of the powerful for a long, long time. Since the Roman Empire. So it only considers the salvation of the sinner, right? Remember the second one, the man? And forgets about the perspective of those who are sinned against. God, man, Christ responds. The man is a sinner here. The model deals with the sinner, the man's sin, absolution of their guilt, and freedom from its consequences. It's saying, you're good. But what is not there in this model? There are those who are sinned against, right? The sinners are there. We're the victims of those sins. The victims, the oppressed, those are the people who are, who are missing in this model. Yes, true, everyone sins, even those who are oppressed, even those who are suffering, all of us sin. No one is perfect. But when we sin, we wrong others, we must own and be accountable, right? But this salvation theology conveniently forgets that, and it does not provide any thoughts as to the fate of the victim, their salvation, their healing, and restoration. So the sinners don't have to worry about making things right, asking for forgiveness, reconciliation. The sinners are forgiven and go their merry ways while the world is being filled with those who have been sinned against, those who are hurting and suffering 
and oppressed. No wonder the world is so full of pain. But Jesus teaches there's no loving God without loving others. Because if Jesus' death and resurrection can bring life to those who have sinned, how much more to those who have been wounded, discriminated against, abused, and exploited? How much more for those who have suffered, those who were the focus of Jesus' ministry on earth? Jesus' ministry was all about the marginalized, the poor, the sick. Salvation is not some kind of membership to an exclusive club where if you know and you are on the good terms with the owner you're in. It is personal but also relational, communal, and social. It is all about love and connections. The theologian Andrew Song Park writes this. In other words, no one is fully saved until all are saved. Salvation is wholeness, and no one can actualize wholeness by him or herself. And this makes sense because we live in a world made up of relationships and connections. This is, I often talk about this. Our existence is neither separate nor independent of others, no matter how well we believe in God. In our individualistic culture, we often forget that, and these blind spots hurt us. If our theology believes that our salvation, our well-being, our wholeness is all about our personal relationship with God and only about that, then when someone struggles with mental health, for example, one has to come to the conclusion that something must be not right with this person's relationship with God, right? They lack faith. And I'm sure there are those of you who have received this type of messages from your churches or families in the past. Let me tell you, they were wrong. That theology ignores entirely other, other, the factors, other factors like past traumas chemical imbalances, stress caused by living conditions, abusive relationships. In other words, our inexplicable, inescapable connection to the fallen world that we live in. And when there is a mental health crisis in society, in our individualistic society, we focus on individual issues, individuals who have problems. But when there's like a pandemic of mental health crisis, we got to also consider the society we live in and what stress and trauma the larger world puts on and imposing on people. So during the pandemic, COVID pandemic, many people, especially young people, teens, 
suffered from depression and anxiety, whether they were directly affected by COVID or not. Was that just because they were stuck at home with their parents, separated from their peers? It's more than that, right? When there's anxiety, fear, death, loss, losses, uncertainty in the society, our young people feel it too, even if they are well sheltered. They're affected by it and they're wounded by it. Because we're all connected. When others are affected, we're affected. John Don beautifully and heartachingly writes in his poem, No Man is an Island. It goes, any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. It tolls for you, for all of us. Really, there is no true salvation unless it is for everyone. I'm not saying that no one is happy or no one has relationship with God unless everyone is happy. We're saved by God's grace every minute of our lives. But true wholeness comes from the wholeness of the entire community and its members. The kingdom of God is not made up of one person. A kingdom is a community. So there is a passage in the Hebrew Bible um, that helps me understand what this kind of communal and individual salvation might look like. And it is in Numbers 6, 24 to 26. It is a very well-known prayer, um, often called the Jewish priestly blessing. And it goes like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Beautiful, isn't it? This prayer is personal and intimate. And it is meant to be prayed over the whole community. Right before this prayer, God says to the priest, thus you shall bless the Israelites, you shall say to them and these, in this prayer. So if we imagine these words, a blessing, prayed over a community, then in that context, the word peace at the end of the prayer the Lord gave you peace. Takes on not only personal, but also relational and communal meaning. And the Hebrew word behind this word, peace, is shalom. And just like the English word peace, the Hebrew word shalom also has a range of nuances that covers a variety of meanings. Especially, it means wholeness. 
but not just the mental and psychological wholeness and contentment, but also physical and material, because there's no peace when you don't have enough to eat, for example. The physical well-being has to come together with the mental well-being. In some places in the Bible, this word also even refers to the well-being of animals, not just humans. And in, in the context of a community, shalom refers to unbroken togetherness, the wholeness of relationships. And it has the nuances of justice and righteousness because without justice, relationships also break down. So taking into account all these different nuances and meanings, this prayer is not just about passively, passively receiving blessing from God, but it is also about maintaining harmony and unity within the community by acting justly and righteously with others. It is a charge from God as well as a blessing. It is about loving God and loving the neighbors as oneself, which is the gift and the commandment at the same time. It is about preserving and respecting nature so non-human members can also enjoy wholeness. Because without that, where would we be? This shalom is a fuller and more life-giving picture of salvation that we want to carry with us. Again, the theologian Andrew Song Park writes, the content of the salvation is the dynamic and loving relationship one enjoys with others in God. And a call to live into that reality, live out of love, in all areas of our lives, connected to God, connected to self, and connected to human and non-human others. So let me give you a few practical suggestions as I wrap up. The first is to reflect on your connections with God, yourself, and others. Think about them in your own life, in your tendencies, in your choices, and in this particular season, because things change. How are these three connections doing in your life? Are, there, are they similarly strong? Or is there a connection that is missing or lagging behind that you've been neglecting, perhaps? Where do you see the most potential for growth? These three connections can work as guidance in our lives, if we think of it that way. My second suggestion is pay attention to others' suffering and their stories. As I said, no one is fully saved until we all are saved. Our liberation and our wholeness is connected to others. 
and their wholeness, their well-being. Don't just think about right and wrong. Think about how they affect people, their actual lives, their particularities, in their own particular context. For example, beyond the question of whether abortion is sin or not, whether it's right or wrong, learn about how it impacts people in different communities, especially women in immigrant, poor, or, or queer communities. It hits them harder. Women in different ethnic groups, it hits them all differently. Hear their stories and Consider them, because we are all connected with them as well. There is no right or wrong without actual people. My third suggestion is remember that God's redemptive love is for the wrongs done to you as well as the wrongs that you've committed. God's salvation is not just for, for sins you committed, but also the sins inflicted on you, the wounds that you still might be carrying. God's love and redemption are for your healing and restoration for your wholeness. So don't carry shame or guilt for what others have done to you. They are not yours to carry, but bring your hurts and pains to God and share the burdens with others who love you. And remember that God's redemptive love is for your wholeness. Let me finish the talk by praying the prayer of blessing that we just read from number six. Uh, but this time, I'm going to replace the male pronoun with, uh, for God with they, because God is one and many. Let me pray for us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make their face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up their countenance upon you and give you shalom today, amen.